2: Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast that tries to do something different. A discussion between Jim Power and Chris Johns about the issues of the day, political developments, economics, finance, and anything else that takes our interest. How are we different? We hope our discussions speak for themselves. You are most welcome to our podcast.
1: Hi, Chris. uh, Good afternoon. Uh, Welcome to our latest podcast. Um, As usual, uh, a lot of stuff to potentially talk about today. And um, I think we'll begin with our COVID corner because there there is quite a bit happening on the COVID front. Uh, We've had an announcement from the Irish government today about um, a reopening plan for other parts of the economy um, into July. Um, We have a lot of um, talk in the UK about the rise of the Indian variant, um, case numbers rising, and there's... Certainly a lot of pressure coming on the Prime Minister to delay the reopening of the UK economy next month because of the Indian variant. And indeed, business leaders over the last couple of days have come out warning the Prime Minister that if the reopening is delayed, that they will require another significant package of financial support to try and um, keep their businesses sustainable um, for as long as it takes. So um, a lot going on, still a lot of uncertainty. And um, I I think one thing that particularly interests me today, and I I certainly know it interests you, and that is Leo Varadkar has basically said that Ireland would not be adhering to the terms of the common travel arrangement um, for the foreseeable future, and certainly not, um, it's not been reinstated in July. And uh, I, I can actually see, you know, where he's coming from on that, because with the rise of the indian variant and with what Neffert is telling them about the indian variant which a lot of which is not backed up by scientific evidence but yet it's the advice that nefer is giving you can see why leo Varadko would try and restrict travel from the uk for the foreseeable future Um, I don't think you share that view, do you?
2: On the common travel area, I have mixed views, Jim. One of the things about it for many years is that it's irritated the hell out of me that when I come through Dublin or indeed any Irish port or airport, I always have to show my passport. And yet when you come into Heathrow or Gatwick and many other places in the UK, there's a special channel for Irish visitors and they're let straight in. And the terms of the common travel area are adhered to in that way by the British, but not by the Irish. I once asked a senior official from the Department of Foreign Affairs about this, and his explanation, for its worth, I've no idea whether it's true or not, I've never checked, but his explanation was that for British travellers to be allowed to travel into Ireland passport free from Great Britain, there would need to be a change of legislation and that the Irish government over the years just hasn't been asked to do it. That's why, I don't know whether that's true or not, but it's a minor irritation. I think this latest thing is a bigger irritation Because one of the things that's happened throughout this pandemic is, again, the British have adhered to the common travel area 100%. You've been able to come over here without any checks. You might have had to fill out a contact tracing form, but that's it. You wouldn't have had to quarantine or show any PCR testing or anything like that. You just enter Britain. Britain has adhered to the common travel area. And quite simply, Ireland hasn't. Zero percent. No point. I think that's essentially the Irish giving up on the common travel area. And I think it raises a question, certainly if the Daily Telegraph could be bothered to do some decent investigative, minor investigative journalism, they'd be up in arms about this. And I think rightly so, because the common travel area either is a common travel area or it isn't. And it certainly hasn't been for the last year. And I do think in my own mind, there are there are questions that could be asked about it in the way that is now being asymmetrically applied.
1: Chris, I have I have mixed views on this as well. Um, I can see why the Irish would not be adhering to it, given what's happening in the UK with the COVID variant. And as I said, given the sort of advice that NEFET is giving the Irish government at the moment, um, I'm not terribly surprised that they are trying to restrict entry from the United Kingdom. Um, And I guess what surprises me is that the UK side is still adhering to the common travel area, given the sort of exceptional circumstances we are in at the moment, which is a global pandemic. So I think the common travel area um, is about an awful lot more than what you're describing. You know, it's, it's, it's not just the passport check coming in and out of the countries. And you're correct in saying that you can walk into the UK as I do. Well, sorry, as I did regularly pre-COVID. Whereas coming back the other side, um, there are passport checks, which is definitely um, an inconvenience. But the common travel area is about a lot more than that. You know, it's about the rights of UK citizens in this country and the rights of Irish citizens in the UK, so they can effectively slot in. They they can vote in many circumstances. They can find employment, um, and, and so on. So I actually think you're being a bit of a drama queen here, Chris. Um, I think you have to understand the con or the context for that comment from Leo Varadkar. You can agree or disagree with it, but that is the sort of advice. He is getting from Neffet. And as we all know, Neffet has effectively been running this country since the middle of March 2020. So um, I think we need to cut the political classes a bit of slack here. Um, And, you know, I I think you're too quick to judge. Um, And I don't believe that we should now scrap the common travel area. I think it's a very important economic and political and indeed social linked between two countries that are intrinsically linked economically, politically, and socially. So when we revert to more normal circumstances, in other words, when COVID is eventually brought in control, um, I, I suspect we would laud the what the common travel area actually allows us to do.
2: I hear what you're saying and I fully understand that being around for a lot longer than the single market and that people between Britain and Ireland have been able to travel work and live freely and still do. One of the peculiarities of Britain leaving the EU is that they've allowed the arrangements that go all the way back to 1921 to continue to prevail. But the fact is, Jim, I speak here sitting as a Brit now, that an Anglo-Irish Brit. I did live in Dublin for 30 years, and I do know the sensitivities, and I do understand the rules. But the simple fact, the simple truth is, is that the Irish are messing with the common travel area, and the British aren't. And I think you do that at your peril. And I think that you risk um, opening a can of worms by messing with the common travel area, that uh, a few xenophobes here might actually use this as, as a stick to beat you with, given that they always seem to like to, to, to beat Varadkar in particular with the Daily Telegraph types. So I think that just be careful about being cavalier with the common travel area and be careful to explain perhaps a wee bit more fully why you're doing it. I don't think the policy has been consistent. I can understand your argument that while Britain had much higher case rates, much higher hospitalizations and deaths, a much worse COVID experience than you, it was a bit like the way in which Wales was shut to England and vice versa. You're more than entitled to do that. But you didn't do anything with that policy when right up until the recent week, Britain has had lower case rates, hospitalizations and deaths than you did. You didn't, there was no hint that the common travel area was about to be restored. At least I didn't spot any hints. And at the first opportunity that you've taken, you've said, right, we're we're definitely not going to restore it. But so we we have different views on this, Jim. I just think you mess with it at your peril. And it's just worth noting that it's the Irish that are messing with the common travel area, not the British. What you say about the India variant though is, is relevant. The India variant is a worry. Cases are up in the UK now. They're up quite a lot over the last seven days and patients admitted to hospital are up a bit. Patients in hospital, um, are actually down and deaths are not yet up in any material way. So. We hope that that continues, but clearly this is one that we need to watch. I wrote something only last week on our site saying I was worried about the India variant, and I think that Johnson made a mistake in the next phase of reopening, which was May the 17th, uh, nearly a couple of weeks ago now, and that that could have been delayed while they acted to squash this variant. So I'm in record as saying is that they made a mistake with the reopening. I don't think they are going to be able to reopen fully in the way that they hope to. Certainly if the numbers continue doing what they've done over the last few days, it really is very worrying. I'm hopeful that it's localised. I'm hopeful that they are able to squash it. I'm hopeful that this is just younger people getting it and that therefore it won't lead to hospitalizations and deaths. I noticed that my native Wales has not seen this increase in cases, hospitalizations that England and Scotland have had. There is some speculation amongst some epidemiologists that Wales may be flirting with herd immunity, amazingly. And there's an incredible story about Welsh vaccination rates that is worth briefly rehearsing. Wales is now the best vaccinated country in the world for any country that has one million or more people. It's better than Israel, which is always held up as the, the example. There are hardly any people in hospital now in Wales with COVID. small double digits, we think. It's an incredible story. And that's because the Welsh treated the vaccination as a sprint, not a marathon. You might recall that various health officials in in Ireland and elsewhere said, oh, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Wales treated it as a sprint, unlike England and Scotland, and have got much better vaccination rates and therefore much better COVID rates. So there's all sorts of interesting things, some good, some not so good in in the recent data. Uh, But Ireland is reopening now, Jim. Tell us all about that.
1: Well, next, um, the week after next, we're seeing outdoor dining coming back, uh, which is great, uh, provided the weather behaves itself. And that certainly hasn't been the case over the last month. Um, and also, of course, lots of establishments will not be able to accommodate outdoor dining. So that that's a problem. But at least it is a step in the right direction. Um, The other thing that's happening, I think, on the 2nd of June is that hotels are reopening and you will be able to eat indoors, provided you're a resident of a hotel. Uh, The Restaurants Association, led by Adrian Cummins, um, are really up in arms about this because uh, they cannot see, and I think with justification, they cannot see the difference between dining in a hotel uh, restaurant just because you're a, a resident there or going into a normal restaurant and eating. So there's there's there's, there's, a, there's a lot of um, angst about that at the moment. But then in July, we are going to see indoor dining resuming under stringent conditions. Um, I think the 19th of July, we're going to see the resumption of international air travel, um, not before time, let it be said. And I heard the chief executive of Ryanair on radio at lunchtime today saying that they have seen a pretty dramatic increase in Irish booking, Irish people booking holidays or booking flights overseas over the next couple of months. So there's certainly a sense that we're gradually returning to normality. Uh, one of the issues, I suppose, of grave uncertainty over the last few days is in relation to the UK um, situation with the Indian variant and the fact that the level of... Um, of resistance to the um, that particular variant um, is not as strong for the vaccines on the market, and the you know the scientific evidence is suggesting that when you get the second vaccine, that dose of vaccine, then your um, immune level increases quite dramatically, immunity level. But the, of course, the problem is that there's a twelve week gap in the AstraZeneca, um, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine is a one shot so there's quite a bit of uncertainty around that at the moment uh, thankfully i got the first dose of pfizer so i'd be getting the second dose within four weeks of that so not as big an issue but th- th- there is um, a-, a justifiable level i guess of anxiety about that at the moment but listening to some of the epidemiological experts that i listen to um they are sort of suggesting that even one dose of the vaccine will significantly reduce your risk of getting seriously ill as a result of the Indian variant. So, um, but, but nevertheless, it's another source of uncertainty. But looking through all of that, yeah, it's great news to see the economy reopening, to see some semblance of return to normality, and indeed. Um, I was struck I had to drive to Limerick yesterday, which was my first time outside of Dublin since early December. And one thing that really struck me was the fact that traffic levels were every bit as heavy the whole way down as they would have been back in 2019. And indeed, we saw statistics released earlier this week showing that footfall in Grafton Street is over 80% of where it was in 2019. Um, every morning I go out for a very early morning walk and um, you can see over the last three or four weeks, traffic volumes are increasing dramatically. And why why this kind of interests me is there's been a lot of speculation over the last 12 months that we would never return to the old norm, you know, that people would change their lifestyles, they wouldn't go back to doing the things they were doing pre-COVID um, I think it is anything but the case. Um, I, I have sensed for some time, and I think it's now being borne out in people's behaviour, the first thing they want to do is to get back to their normal lives as quickly as they can. And indeed, I think the shine and allure from remote working is fading very, very significantly. Um, I think a lot of people are sick to the teeth of working from home at this juncture. And from a social point of view, cannot wait to get back into the office so I see things assuming uh, the vaccine rollout continues to be effective that the Indian variant doesn't cause us any problems, significant problems uh, I can see life returning to a significant level of normality Um, and personally my desire is to return to normal as quickly as possible
2: Well I've just come from a nice liquid lunch where I am indoors I couldn't possibly comment. It may be why I'm playing fast and loose with my comments about the common travel area. I was, of course, being controversial slightly for the sake of it. I must say that I have been irritated by it over the years, and I do understand why it has been suspended for most of this pandemic. But I don't think that's been explained very well. And I just was really sounding a note of caution while I do understand why you you really do have to be careful, particularly with this India variant, and I totally get that. But just be very careful about playing fast and loose with the CTA, because you do not want xenophobic voices in the UK saying, why do we treat the Irish any different to the French or the Germans when it comes to their rights? So just explain what you're doing better, perhaps, is, is, is the message that I have from that. So it's great that Ireland's reopening, that you soon will be doing what I've done today, being more controversial on these podcasts as a result of, of the liquid lunch. But one of the consequences of being out and about that I've spoken about many times now on this podcast is that I'm noticing here in the UK as a result of reopening, or at least in part as a result of the reopening, is that prices have gone up a lot for food and drink and also for bottled water. If the experience here is anything to go by, and from what we're also seeing in the United States, another economy that's reopening rapidly, part of your reopening is going to be higher prices.
1: You mentioned the US inflation data, which was published today. The key um, inflation indicator that the uh, Federal Reserve looks at, um, it increased year on year by 3.1%. And there's a target of around 2%. So, inflation is significantly overshooting what the Federal Reserve would have been traditionally comfortable with. And looking at the reasons driving that, some of the increases are described as reopening inflation. So, hotel rooms, airfares, used car prices have rebounded very, very strongly. Um, And there is something, so that could be transitory, okay? But the non-transitory piece is that medical care service prices have increased very significantly. So that that is an element of inflation that, become, that can become embedded in the system. I was also struck by a story out of Berlin today. They're basically saying that the hospitality sector there is struggling to fill uh, staff shortages in the hospitality sector. And um, indeed, this is reputed, well, sorry, it's reported to be uh, a common theme across Europe where the hospitality sector particularly is finding it very difficult to rehire people to come in. And of course, that, that may result, well, sorry, it will result in having to pay higher wages, which in turn will feed into higher prices. And why are these shortages there? Well, I mean, you have alluded to this in the past that a lot of people, are basically in the wrong place at the moment. You know, they've left uh, their countries, they've they've gone back to where they come from. So a lot of the people who previously worked in the hospitality sector are no longer around to work in the hospitality sector. And um, and I I guess another point there uh, that's kind of worth bearing in mind is the impact that the employee supports have on people's willingness to go back to work and Mark Paul in the Irish Times today had an interesting story from the hair industry the hair hairdressing industry uh, they are struggling to get staff back at the moment and there's one um, chain of hairdressers quoted here is saying that they've had to turn away 40 percent of their custom over the last couple of weeks because they cannot get staff to work. And one of the reasons for that is the pandemic unemployment payment, €350 a week. Why would you bother going to work if you can earn that kind of money? And of course, in the hairdressing industry, there is a massive informal economy as well. So if you're a hairdresser at home, being paid the pandemic unemployment payment, uh, cutting hair for all your family and friends and getting paid for doing so, what is the incentive to come back to work? So that then feeds into higher wages and higher inflation. So yeah, there's no doubt. Chris, Jim,
2: Jim, I got to I got to pick you up on that. I, I think that some of our hairdressing friends may be grossly offended by the suggestion that vast swathes of them are sitting in their la- their kitchens and and garages, cutting other people's hair and receiving the pandemic unemployment payment. Is there any evidence that that's a widespread abuse at all?
1: Yes, Chris. It, it was always the case that the Hairdressing industry had a significant informal economy because um, you know it's ripe for it. And I did a study for the Hair and Beauty Industry Confederation (HABIC) about a year ago, and I estimated at that stage that the informal economy is equivalent to between thirty and fifty percent of um, legitimate turnover. So that's a value of at least four hundred million. So the informal economy has been a significant feature of the hairdressing sector. There is no doubt about that. And it has been exacerbated by COVID-19 because a lot of people have got people they know working in the area to cut their hair. So it it has definitely perpetuated the informal economy in that sector. And the reality is, Chris, uh, however you want to explain it, the reality is hairdressing businesses are struggling to get staff back at the moment, and it is seriously damaging their business model. So whatever the reason for that, um, I think it is a combination of PUP and the fact that there is a significant informal economy out there.
2: But it could just be because people have gotten used to and decided that they like and that maybe they can make more money by working for themselves. My point is, I think that we need to be careful if we think that they're also abusing the pandemic unemployment scheme as well by working from home and claiming the benefit. I don't think there's much evidence to suggest that there's a large number of people doing both. That's that's my only thought. I don't know. I don't know the data in the way that you do.
1: I think you're wrong, to be honest. Um, okay. Yeah, and 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 I guess by definition, getting data on the informal economy is always very difficult. Uh, but but we do know that um, there was up to a couple of weeks ago before the hairdressing sector reopened, there was a lot of workers in that sector in receipt of pup, justifiably so. But we also know anecdotally that a lot of um, people in the industry were actually cutting hair on the side. And, you know, who's to blame them?
2: And they may not be the same people, of course.
1: Of course they may not. No, no, I mean, I'm... I'm Okay, I I have to say the story that Mark Paul had in the Irish Times, he quoted a number of industry players, and that is their view, okay? And it certainly is, is consistent with what I understand about that industry but as i say unfortunately when 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 you're trying to measure something that's informal by definition there is a lack of data uh, to go on. But it's it's an issue.
2: You are the um, hair and beauty expert in, um, in CJP economics, <laughs> Jim. Uh, so I will defer to your thing. expertise. But Jim, there's also been, for me, a fascinating story in the FT earlier this week about the price of your breakfast and that the things that uh, we typically eat for breakfast, the inputs to that, things like corn, wheat, coffee prices, and other foodstuffs are going through the roof. It's another aspect of this broader inflation story that, that we've been telling for quite some time. I don't know whether you read this story, but I must say, as a coffee drinker, not so much as a breakfast eater, but certainly as somebody that drinks quite a lot of coffee, I was quite alarmed by what I'm seeing.
1: Yeah, that, that was a fascinating story in the Financial Times because... I do quite a bit of work in the agri-food sector in, in this country, and it's an area that really interests me. I guess it's the farmer in me. But one of the features of the food sector for going back a couple of decades has been price compression. You know, food prices have been consistently on a downward trend, which creates all sorts of business issues for the primary producers of food Uh, but the story in the financial times you know is 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 suggesting that the cost of raw materials that go into making our breakfast staples have increased significantly so stuff like coffee milk sugar wheat oats orange juice on the the bulk contracts for those products are reckoned to be 28 percent up on 2019 levels okay so Um, It's the wholesale or sort of commodity market. That's where the real pressure is. But of course, that is, is, I won't say it's likely, it is going to be passed on to consumers. And I suppose in the current environment, as we reemerge from COVID, consumers are so dying to get back out spending, to get into restaurants and so on. Uh, That price will be a secondary consideration for the moment. So I guess what I'm saying is that for the sellers of food products, be it in the food service business or wherever, if their commodity prices are increasing, they are now for the first time in a long, long time, probably in a stronger position to pass those higher prices onto the consumer. So it does feed in again to this inflation narrative that we've discussed today, that we've discussed in a number of recent podcasts, um, it's it's definitely becoming an issue. As, as well as food commodity prices under pressure, the more stories I'm hearing about what's happening other commodities, such as for the construction industry, you know, timber, for example, prices increasing rapidly, significant scarcity. So there is definitely a huge supply problem out there at the moment. And that is going to feed into higher inflation. So it's, we've said it several times on this podcast that this is a topic we will keep discussing um, and that is as it's turning out to be. And of course, the real implication of that is Uh, what does it it do to influence the actions of central banks?
2: Well, this is the really interesting thing, because there's been a change of tone in the last few days from the world's most important central bank, the Federal Reserve, in the US. They've learned the lesson from a few years ago when there was something called a taper tantrum. The Federal Reserve then was talking about tapering its purchases of bonds, which is the technical term for printing money. They were talking about then stopping printing money. And the markets, the financial markets, both bonds and stock markets went nuts. And what they're doing now is learning the lessons of that and getting their communications right. And the change of tone is that it's a phrase that you'd recognize, Jim, is that they're talking about talks. They're talking about talking about reducing the amount of money that they're printing to stimulate the economy, introducing that kind of language into the the financial debate in order to, I think, bring forward ultimately, and it's not on the horizon yet, but it's definitely approaching the horizon, that's the talks about talks thing, interest rate rises. I think they lie in our future, not our near future, but, that, but if this inflation story that we're telling every time we talk on this podcast keeps building in the way that it is, we're going to see this change of tone become a change of volume and that we are going to see something in the United States on this. The financial markets are taking it on the chin, it has to be said. One of the things that this inflation story has done over the course of the last month is stopped U.S. stock prices, the U.S. equity market, the Dow Jones and the S&P from going up. It's basically been a flattish month for those markets. So it's stopped the bull market in its tracks. But the market hasn't gone down, not yet anyway. And today, for example, as we're speaking, the market has taken that inflation news that you spoke about earlier on, at least for now, on the chin. So the financial markets are buying into this idea that we've talked about, that it's temporary, it's just about supply bottlenecks, and the sudden restarting of economies has this kind of one-off effects. Trouble will come if the market decides that it's not just one-off. And that's why we've got to keep looking at it. I'm, as you you know, as you've heard me say on this podcast several times, I'm getting more nervous the more the data is coming out. But I'm still of the view that it is a one-off, but it's turning into be a much bigger one-off than I originally thought. And I must say I'm impressed by the way the financial markets have taken it on the chin. If you told me at the beginning of this year that we'd be getting one inflation number of above 4% and today's inflation number above 3%, I would have said that financial markets would have been in a lot more trouble. So it just shows you how good I am at forecasting financial markets. Do you think if you were sitting here today, would you be a buyer or seller of equities on the basis of everything that we've been talking about?
1: Okay, if it depends, obviously on the time horizon, because I, I, I do sense, and, and this momentum has building up, been building up in our conversations over the last couple of months. Um, I, I sense that for the foreseeable future, that these inflation problems, worries, threats will exert a significant influence and create nervousness and volatility in market behavior. So I am sort of surprised that markets can still look through numbers like we saw today um, with such a sense of calm. Um, But I think the more of this we see, which we're likely to, markets are likely to become more nervous and more volatile. So I'd be cautious in the short term, but if I had a longer term time horizon, as in 12 months plus, um, personally, um, I would have no problem holding equities. Um, I can't give investment advice. I can only say what I would do myself. Um, And that's certainly what I am doing at the moment. I'm taking a longer term perspective. I'm looking through these uh, worries, concerns, nervousness about inflation um, and, and taking the longer view on where equities are likely to go. And I think they're, they're going to continue to do well. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we have to accept and it's becoming apparent in every podcast we're doing that this story is just building legs, growing legs the whole time. Every piece of news we're getting is all feeding into this inflation narrative. Of course, we are in a really unusual situation. We are... Um, emerging from um, a pandemic that hasn't happened in 100 years. So very unusual circumstances, but certainly there is uh, a a story building, as I say. And there is also the point that if you look at where fiscal policy is and has been, lots of countries with big budget deficits at the moment, um, you know, the necessity of central banks to keep interest rates down, particularly long-term interest rates, uh, is the necessity is very great, uh, but it it does create a serious quandary for them. So I I think policymakers are in a really, really tricky environment at the moment. And, And that does lead me to believe that you will get periodic bouts of more intense market nervousness and volatility than we've seen in recent weeks.
2: Wise words, Jim. And I have to say, well, I would agree with you. I I'm getting increasingly nervous, like you. So I do think there is some volatility coming. But I've also said earlier my my ability as a forecaster of these things is about nil. So uh, I think we should leave it at that, a suitably caveated bit of forecasts. Thanks again, Jim. It's been a pleasure. And um, we'll speak to you soon.
1: Great, Chris. Thank you. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power We aim to provide an independent take on economics, politics, and anything else that takes our fancy. Thank you very much for listening, and we hope to have you on board again very soon.
0: Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined.